0: your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. That's what we'll be looking at tonight. I guess it's this afternoon. So this afternoon we'll be looking at Ruth chapter 1. Here now the inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he, and his wife, and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister, sister sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Charles Dickens once wrote... In A Tale of Two Cities, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Oftentimes the first sentence of a book uh, can tell you a lot about what will follow. And this is true of Ruth and it's true of many other books as well. So we have to think carefully about the setting of this book and uh, what exactly the author is trying to set up for us when he tells us that uh, this book was written in the days when the judges ruled. That's a crucial statement. I think that if Charles Dickens were to write the book of Ruth, I think he would probably leave out the first part and just say it was the worst of times. <laughs> and if you know anything about the book of Judges, you would understand why he would say that, because the book of Judges was like uh, uh, a bunch of tales of uh, failed leaders in the in the time of Israel. And why was this? So there are two, t- two things that you might uh, notice about the time in which the judges ruled. First of all, uh, this was not a time that was good for the people of Israel. Uh, it was a time in which there was uh, idolatry, rampant idolatry, rampant immorality. Uh, constantly, the people of Israel would... Uh, go after other gods, and then God would allow them to be subject to their enemies, and then the people would cry out to God for repentance. So it was a continual downward spiral for the people of Israel. Then God would raise up a judge for them, and then the cycle would start all over again. And so you see this uh, continual cycle of forsaking God and returning to him. And the time of the judges was also a day when each man did what was right in his own eyes. It was a day when Israel did not have a king, and there was lawlessness in the land. Israel was still forming a national identity. So this is the time period in which the book of Ruth was set. And furthermore, and this is the second point about the setting of this book, there was a famine in the land. So you notice that This book is written in the days when the judges ruled. There's rampant lawlessness. Secondly, it's written when there's a famine in the land. And if you know anything about the ancient world, famines were a constant uh, factor in life. Uh, There was a lack of food. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that God often used famines to get his people's attention back on him. So this is a narrative clue that God is seeking to get the nation of Israel to repent. He's seeking to get his people's attention back on them and point out their spiritual famishment. God is the one causing this famine. And ironically, the particular place in Judah where this story occurs is Bethlehem. Bethlehem, which means house of bread. Ironically, there is no bread in the house of bread. That's where the story is set. So you put together political instability with a lack of food, and what you get is a very hard place to live. Very unlike this place where we live here, where there's an abundance of food and there is relative political stability. This is not a place where you can go to the grocery store and go buy food whenever you want. Israel at this point would have been much more like a third world country in our estimation. So you can see why Elimelech chooses to take his family and go to the fields of Moab. This is the first action in the story. Elimelech is looking to better the fortunes of his family. However, what do we find? Instead of bettering the fortunes of his family, we find that the plight of his family actually gets worse. worse. Especially that of his wife. But what we find after examining this chapter is that God remains steadfastly faithful to his people, even when they have not been faithful to him, and even when they do not feel like he has been good to them. God is being faithful to his people and providing for them. And that's the point of this chapter. God remains steadfastly faithful to his people in the midst of hardship. In this, we're going to see how God brings life out of death for Naomi and the lives of his people by showing his covenant love to them. And we see this in two parts. There's, there's two parts to this story that I want to see, want you to see here. Part one shows us the emptiness of life in turning aside from God and turning aside from his people. And part two shows us the fullness which the blessing of God's steadfast love brings in the midst of bitterness. Part two shows us the fullness which the blessing of God's steadfast love brings in the midst of bitterness. So let's begin by looking at this first part. Part one of this chapter shows us the bleakness of turning from God. Earlier, I spoke to you about the setting of this book. And this book is written in a time of political instability and famine. And because of this, we find Elimelech, he leaves Bethlehem. He and his wife and his two sons go to the fields of Moab. And initially, it was it appears as though Elimelech was planning on just visiting Moab. He was just planning on staying for a little while. But after being there for a time... He decides to settle there. Notice in verse 1, it says that he went to sojourn there. And then in verse 2, they went into the country and remained there. Now, some people might look at this and say, well, you can understand why he left. He has to survive, doesn't he? Why would you want to live in a country where there's no food? Why would you want to live in a country where there's no political stability, where each man is doing what's right in his own eyes? You can imagine the chaos that would ensue in a country like that. This would not be a safe country to live in. And we know that in our day, people move around for various reasons, to seek employment or to be closer to family. And we know that there isn't anything wrong with that. But in this time, God's people are called to live in the promised land of Israel. This is the place where God has called his people to be. This was the place where God had given his revelation. This was the place where he had specially set apart a people for his name. And so this is the church in the Old Testament day. This is where the church is. It's in Israel. And so you see here that Elimelech is leaving the people of God. He's leaving the church for the better fortunes of his family. Elimelech and Naomi are leaving God's people. They are not choosing to stay and faithfully wait for God to act, but rather they are taking matters into their own hands. And not only was Elimelech leaving the promised land, but he was also going to Moab. Now, if you remember, Moab was an enemy of Israel. If you want to go back to the book of Numbers, for example, to, to look at the history of uh, Israel's interaction with Moab, you will find that uh, it's not an amicable relationship from the very beginning, to say the least. Uh, For example, uh, in Numbers, uh, the king of Moab, Balak, hires Balaam, the prophet, to curse Israel. And then that fails, and it actually turns out to be a blessing. So uh, then their women seduce the Israelite men. So Moab and Israel are not friends, to say the least. This is not a place where you would take your family to flourish spiritually. This would have been a place where no one was worshiping the true God of Israel. This would have been a place of spiritual famine for Elimelech and his family. And yet he goes. Instead of staying in Israel and suffering with the people of God, trusting that God will take care of his family, Elimelech leaves. And this is especially ironic because of what his name means. And in the Old Testament, we know that names are very important. And Elimelech's name means, God is my king. And yet here, Elimelech acts as if God is not his king, but I am king. He acts as if he is his own king. Here, Elimelech does not trust God to give him bread, but goes and looks for his own bread and takes things into his own hands. And so we see here Elimelech and his family turning aside from the people of God, turning away from the place where God has called them to live. And perhaps to Elimelech and Naomi, it might have seemed reasonable. You can imagine they might have said to themselves, you know, we will just leave Israel for a short time until this famine is over, and then we will return. It will just be a short break. But you see, they did not turn, return right away. They spent at least ten years in Moab. And while away from Israel, tragedy strikes. Now let me say this, brothers and sisters, it is never worth it to leave the church. It's never worth it to leave the people of God. For any reason, this the church is the place where God will grow you, the place where God will flourish you. If you leave the church, you will end up dry, and spiritually famished. I've heard stories of this happening time and time again. Uh, Recently, I heard the story of a man's college roommate. One day, this person uh, came into his college dormitory, and he saw his roommate there, and it was the day before Sunday. And so he asked his roommate, "Uh, are you going to church today, or are you going to church uh, the next day? And the answer that this roommate gave was, well, you know, I'm going to take a break from church for a bit so I can work on uh, focusing on my classes and focusing on my studies. And I'm going to come back as soon as I'm less busy. Then I'll go to church. And you know where that person is now? He and his family are still not in church 20 years later. Uh, And today in our culture, this happens time and again. There seems to be this pervasive sense that going to church is optional. Uh, going to church uh, is just about when I want to go, and then, uh, you know, if it doesn't work out, if it doesn't work with my schedule, if it doesn't work with my work priorities, I don't need to go. I hear people say, you know, I'm a religious person, but I just don't like going to church. Nature is my church. That's where I go and experience God. And we've seen Church attendance in our culture has seen a precipitous fall over the last few decades. However, the the Scriptures show us a different way, don't they? The Scriptures call us to be a part of the church. The Scriptures command us to be in church, to be a part of the people of God, to be with the people of God. Uh, Just one Scripture which I can think of which speaks of this is Hebrews 10, 24-25. It says, "Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." You see the Bible presupposes that there is one another fellowship going on for believers. It would have been unthinkable for you to be a Christian in the early days of the church and not to be a part of the visible church. This is the place where Christ is speaking to his people. If you want to hear Christ speak, be in the church. Sit under the preaching of the word of God. This is vital for your spiritual health. Furthermore, to give another reason to go to church, the gathering of God's people combats the isolation caused by sin. Ever since the beginning, man has been trying to hide from God and cover up his sin. But the church, being in the church, combats that natural tendency to hide and to shun exposure. Being in church forces you towards transparency and openness with God and with others. So, if anything, we what we learn from this passage, brothers and sisters, is that you need the people of God. You need the church. You need to be with God's people. But choose to leave the church and your spiritual life will wither up and die. Deciding to uh, take a break from the church or uh, to leave church for some reason or other, although it might seem pragmatically better, ends up being spiritual death. And this is what happens to Elimelech and his family. And we see the impact of his actions on his family here. I think about, again, names matter in this story. Naomi. Think about her name. Naomi means my delight, my pleasantness. And why is this important? Well, we see in this chapter that her delight is taken from her. Uh, Naomi's life becomes very bleak in this chapter. Disaster strikes. First, we see that Elimelech, her husband, dies and leaves her with two sons. And then we see that after 10 years of marriage to foreign women, Her sons die and leave her with no grandchildren. Now think about this. In a a time when, uh, for women, family is everything, Naomi is left without any male protectors in her life. Uh, Think about what that would mean for a woman in this time period. This was not a day when uh, women went to go work for themselves in the marketplace. This was a play time when women depended upon men in their lives to provide for them. The, at this time, a woman's identity was defined by the men in her life. And now, Naomi's identity has been taken away from her. A woman who has no man in her life uh, to protect or care for her is a pariah, pariah in this society. So Naomi is without husband, without sons, and she's outside the promised land. She is in the worst place that she could be. So the question that we are faced with after these five verses is what's going to happen for Naomi now that she has lost her husbands and sons? How could God do this thing to her? Interestingly, the names of her two sons are also significant. Malon and Kilion meant wasting away and sick. And I'm sure that this is what Naomi felt like at this time. She must have felt like her life was wasting away and sick. What does she have left in the world? Well, all she really has left are her two Moabite daughters-in-law. And what good could they be to Naomi? Moabite women were foreigners. They were forbidden from entering the assembly with God's people. Imagine going back to the land of Israel with uh, two foreigners in tow, especially Moabite women. It would have been despised in her own country. Naomi's life is wasting away in the beginning of this chapter. She's lost family, famine, exile, grief. Loneliness mark her life. Ironically, the place where Naomi's family thought to find fullness and bread is the place where they have found human barrenness. Emptiness. And we can see how Naomi is feeling in this chapter. Look at verse 13. Naomi says, No, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And when she gets back to Bethlehem in verse 21, she says, For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord? has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. These two complaints here show that Naomi feels abandoned by God. Naomi feels like God is hidden and that he doesn't care. He's abandoned her. For Naomi at this point, uh, she sees God like some kind of cosmic vending machine that if you put good works into... Uh, he's going to spit out blessings. That's the way her view of God is right now. Uh, You can imagine Naomi saying, I'm a good person, God. Uh, You can't take away my husbands and sons. This is not fair. Naomi is raging at God in this chapter. She's angry at God. And in this, uh, we see Naomi demonstrating her lack of faith. She's not trusting the purposes of God for her life. Because if she had been, she would see that, in fact, Uh, her actions had led her outside uh, the place of spiritual flourishing. She would see that, in fact, God has, even though she has left uh, the people of God, God has given her blessings. Now, another uh, word of practical exhortation for you, brothers and sisters, there is a place for airing our emotions before God in prayer, no doubt. You can be honest with God. You ought not to be afraid to tell God how you feel. And the psalmist, we know, does this frequently. In Psalm twenty-five sixteen, the psalmist says when he is in trouble, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. The psalmist is not afraid to voice his emotions before God, and neither should you be. Neither was Christ. If you remember on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Christ in his humanity felt free to voice his loneliness to God. Even Christ himself asked why. Yet there is a line which these righteous laments don't cross. Notice that they do not accuse God of wrongdoing. They speak honestly to the Lord, but they do not lash out at the Lord. Look with me at another example of a man who suffered greatly. If you turn to the book of Job and look at chapter 1, you see that after Job has lost his two sons and his daughters and his servants and his property, what does Job say? It says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord." Job refuses to lash out at God. Job instead shows that everything that he has is in the Lord's hand and that the Lord can take it away at any moment. Even when Job's own wife comes to speak to him in chapter 2 and says, curse God and die, Job says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In other words, Job recognizes the sovereignty of God. There are times of fullness and there are times of emptiness, and the Lord brings both of those seasons into our life. We ought not to think of the Lord mechanistically as if he always rewards us when we do good and punishes us when we do evil. Now, the Lord may have been disciplining Naomi in his fatherly displeasure, no doubt, but we ought not to say that this justifies what Naomi has said. Naomi is accusing God of wrongdoing. But in fact, contrary to what Naomi said, God is still with Naomi and intends to bless her. But she just doesn't realize it yet. And so, brothers and sisters, if anything, reading Naomi's words about God teaches us that we ought not to judge God upon our circumstances, upon our present circumstances. You may go, be going through a very difficult time, Some of you may have lost a job, or perhaps a loved one died, or perhaps someone you loved betrayed you. Whatever your particular hardship is, I can tell you this, that God is with you in the midst of your suffering. And so we see Naomi's response to her suffering shows what's in her heart. She's not trusting God in this chapter. And this also shows us that we ought to cry out to God, but... Tell them them about your pain. Tell them about your emptiness. But don't accuse God of doing evil. For God is not the author of evil, but the author of good. So this is the first part of the chapter. We see the bleakness of life and turning away from God. The second part of this chapter shows us the blessing of God in a friend who shows steadfast love to Naomi. We see that God has not forgotten about Naomi, but is in fact providing a way back to him for her. In verses 6 through 7, we are told that Naomi has decided to return with her daughters in law back to her own country because the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So you can imagine Naomi's back in the fields of Moab trying to glean food for herself, and she hears that God has visited his people And she probably remembers her upbringing, her time in Israel, and how she should be with the people of God. And so here we find that Naomi decides to return to her land, to return to the people of God. And notice uh, that in the beginning of this chapter, Elimelech and Naomi, they decide to turn away from God's people. And now Naomi is returning, deciding to return to the house of God. Interestingly, this is somewhat analogous to the story of the prodigal son. If you remember the story of the prodigal son, uh, what happens? The prodigal son leaves his father's house and lives profligately, and then he ends up in a pigsty. And what happens then? He remembers that in his father's house he had bread to eat. And Naomi now remembers her own land. And so Naomi returns to Bethlehem with her two daughters-in-law. Now, it is ironic that uh, Naomi and her two daughters are returning to Bethlehem now because they originally left Bethlehem, the house of bread, for bread. But they couldn't find bread. And now they're returning back to the house of bread for bread. So there is irony in this passage. But what should Naomi do with her two daughters-in-law? That's the question here. Uh, and you see that she is struggling with with these uh with, with their lives, with what they should do. She doesn't want them to give up what could be a good life for them in Moab. And so she tries to convince them to go back. And yet they want to remain with her. In verses 8 through 13, uh, you can see Naomi on the road uh, with her daughters-in-law, going back home. And Naomi knows that it's going to be hard. They're going to have very little chance of future prosperity with her. Her people are not their people. Her God is not their God. They would be foreigners in Bethlehem. And they would also be an added burden to Naomi, who is already without men in her life to protect her. And one can see uh, the pragmatic aspect of Naomi's reasoning here in verses 8 through 13. Naomi is trying to be kind to these young women. Naomi is giving them a chance to leave now. If you read verse 8, she says to them, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So you see Naomi's offer here. This is their last chance. Go back. If they come with Naomi, they would have no prospect of marriage, no prospect of having children. Naomi is too old to give birth to sons that they could marry. Therefore, choosing to go with Naomi would be like permanently signing up to be without husbands, without hope for the future. It would be signing up for a life of hardship and emptiness. Why should they go with her? And you can see these two daughters care for her, because in verse 14 it says that after Naomi said this, they lifted up their voices and wept. There seems to be a lot of weeping in this chapter when you read through it. Clearly, these women care for each other. But what is it that these two daughters decide to do in response to this? And I think both of their responses are very telling. Verse 14 says, And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Here we see two responses to what Naomi said. The first response from Orpah shows that she's thinking with her head here. Orpah pulls out her calculator and calculates that if she goes with Naomi, she's going to lose much. This is not going to be a good career decision for Orpah. She's a young woman in her 20s, and she knows that she's probably going to have a more normal life back in Moab. Orpah chooses the safe route. Orpah chooses not to risk anything. Her calculation is God minus everything is worth it versus everything minus God. Orpah chooses not to be a pilgrim with the people of God. But in contrast to Orpah, Ruth clings to Naomi. In contrast to Orpah's goodbye kiss, Ruth is not letting go of Naomi. Ruth is deeply loyal and faithful to Naomi. Ruth chooses Naomi's people. Interestingly, the same word for clung that's used uh, in this passage in Romans or in Ruth chapter one verse fourteen is used in Genesis two twenty-four to describe covenant faithfulness in marriage. So this is a kind of clinging which is deep, which is a soul commitment. Ruth is willing to cast in her lot with Naomi in keeping with her name, which means friendship. Ruth here is bringing, is being a true friend to Naomi. Ruth shows Hesed to Naomi. And Hesed is a very uh, important Hebrew word in the Bible, which means kindness or covenant faithfulness. It's a word that's often used to describe God's kindness or covenant faithfulness to His people. God is a God of steadfast love and kindness. And Naomi actually uses this term in speaking with her daughters. In verse 8, she says, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Here, Naomi is invoking the Lord's hesed over her two daughters. But interestingly, what Naomi doesn't see is that God intends to show hesed to her through her daughter-in-law. This is the great reversal in this chapter. Imagine being an Israelite and reading this chapter and coming to verse 14 and seeing it's Ruth, the Moabite daughter-in-law, who's showing kindness to Naomi, who's the Israelite. This would be quite a shocking development for an Israelite to read about this. This is a reversal. This is an unexpected turn of events. And that's what Ruth is showing to Naomi here when she clings to her. And she shows this commitment with her remarkable words in verses 16 through 18. Let's read those words again. Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. You know, oftentimes uh, people use these words in their marriage vows. And they only, um, they use these clearly because of their beauty. Uh, the words are beautiful here. Uh, they, these are incredibly touching words to use. Of course, because they show great commitment to the other person. But notice that uh, what many people leave out of their marriage vows uh, in verse 17. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Uh, Imagine saying uh, to your future spouse or your spouse previously, Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. You're saying, beyond death, I'm committed to you. Not just death do us part, but beyond death. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is amazing. Ruth is committing her whole life to Naomi and her people. This commitment is beyond death. This is a level of commitment which goes beyond normal levels of human commitment. And this is a remarkable act by a Moabite woman. May I say that again? Ruth is not from the people of Israel. However, clearly she seems to know something about the God of Naomi. Most likely, Naomi has told her about her God. And Ruth has decided... To make Naomi's God her God. Notice how she uses the Lord's name. May the Lord do so unto me and more if anything but death departs me, parts me from you. Ruth knows the God of Naomi and she has decided to convert to being a follower of this God. Ruth is saying, I will choose to impoverish myself for you and I expect nothing in return. I will give up any blessing that I might expect in Moab and I will be poor with you. I will be despised with you, and I will die with you. Ruth is embodying covenant faithfulness to Naomi. Even though Naomi is bitter, Ruth impoverishes herself to be with Naomi. This is the Lord's provision for Naomi in the midst of her hardship. And this is very much like God's show of commitment to his own people. When he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Ruth is demonstrating God's covenant love to Naomi. God's faithfulness to his people is steadfast. God's faithfulness to his people is beyond death. It goes through the deepest hardship and sorrow. And how is it that Ruth could show this level of commitment to Naomi? Well, clearly God has been working in the heart of Ruth. This is not possible for a sinful person to do this. And what we see here are the evidences of faith in Ruth's heart. God has been working in Ruth's heart. This love that Ruth shows to Naomi is like the love that Jesus described when he said, greater love hath no man than this, than that he would lay down his life for his friend. And that's what Ruth is doing here. Ruth is laying down her life for Naomi. Who does this remind us of? Who else lays down their life for those who could give nothing back? Who else impoverishes themselves for those who can't give to them? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gives himself to those who can't give back. And that's what we see here in the life of Ruth. We see a picture of what Christ does for us. Think about what Jesus does for us. Jesus Christ leaves his Father's side to die for us. Jesus leaves infinite pleasure and glory for humiliation. He commits himself to us in steadfast love when we don't deserve it. Rather than seeing Ruth as an example of what we should do, we ought to see God working in Ruth, the character of Christ. We see a picture of Christ, the image of Christ being worked into Ruth. And in our bitterness and in our turning aside, Jesus clings to us, even when we haven't been faithful to him. He himself clings to us and tells us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He tells us that he will always be with us, even to the ends of the ages. And that's your greater friend, Jesus Christ. And I would say that if you haven't heard this before, if you're not a believer and haven't trusted Christ, trust in Him. He's the friend that will never abandon you. Turn to Him. And if you are a believer, this should encourage you to turn to Him even more. Learn to preach this gospel to yourself. Jesus has clung to me and died for me. No matter what you have done, no matter how many times you've turned aside from God, if you're one of Jesus' children, He'll never leave you. He'll always cling to you. So here we are given a picture of Christ's kindness because Ruth's faithfulness points to God's faithfulness for His people in Jesus Christ. If Ruth shows faithfulness to Naomi... Jesus Christ shows even more faithfulness to you. Ruth's faithfulness is like this on the scale of faithfulness, where Jesus Christ's faithfulness is greater than you could ever even imagine. Know that he gave his body and blood for you. Know that he has committed himself to you utterly. So God comes to his people when they are lost in sin and covenants with them and promises to walk with them. That's the glorious gospel that we find in Ruth. And we are reminded even more of this faithfulness at the end of this chapter. Look at the end of this chapter. There's a note of foreshadowing and hope in this direction. Notice that in verse 22, uh, after uh, Naomi has... um, complained to the townswomen of God's treatment of her. Notice it says, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Harvest is a time in the the land of Israel where there's uh, reaping and singing. It's a time of uh, rejoicing in the provision that God gives his people. You know, we we celebrated Thanksgiving not too long ago. Harvest is like uh, Thanksgiving for the people of Israel at this time. And now remember that uh, Naomi left at a time of famine. So she would not have left in a time of eating and rejoicing. She left when there was no bread, and now the people have food to eat. God has brought Naomi back at a time of food and abundance. You notice how in this chapter, Naomi says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. But we see here a foreshadowing of how God will fill her up. And he's already started to do that in the blessing which Ruth has given her. Notice that God is already beginning to restore her joy and to work in her life. And the arc that this book follows is one of changing Naomi's sorrow to joy. Even though Naomi feels empty, God is going to fill her in the end. And that is what he will do with you too, brothers and sisters. God is going to fill you completely with all that you need. Even though you may uh, feel as though uh, God has been against you, perhaps you feel as though uh, you're bitter or empty. Do not lose hope. Harvest is coming. If you are in Christ, God will fill you with abundance in the end. Just as he's already blessed you with every spiritual blessing that is in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. He will bring you to himself in the end and fill you up and satisfy every longing in your heart. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture in the book of Ruth of the gospel, of a woman who shows steadfast love to another woman. We thank you, Lord, that um, while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ came and redeemed us from our sins. We thank you for the great steadfast love and faithfulness that Christ shows to us, even when we aren't faithful to him. We praise you, Lord, for this, and we ask you that you would work this truth into our lives such that we are grateful for what you have done, and that we remember it and preach it to ourselves constantly. And then make us, Lord, those who also become conduits of blessing to those in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.